Thank you, Sprouse. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you turn with me to John chapter 4? Last week, Dave apologized to you for reading 21 verses. Uh, I promise not to read to you all 34 that I picked this week. I'm just going to read a section. I'm going to read verses 7 through 10. Uh, We're going to talk about most of the chapter, uh, but I'm just going to read that little portion. And we are talking uh, last week and this week about, uh, we are preparing for a sermon series on the book of Jonah. And last week, Pastor Dave preached through Daniel chapter 1 and talked about what it looks like for us to love the city. Uh, This week, we're going to look at John chapter 4 and look a little bit uh, about God's grace and how both of those things are going to be on display uh, in the book of Jonah. So uh, this is John chapter 4, and as I'm reading this, recognize that this is a portion of the truest story in the world. It is the story about what has happened, the story about what is happening, and the story about what will happen. And it's the story that all of us are a part of. This is God's word in John chapter 4. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. This is God's word to us this morning. Would you pray with me? Our great God, we thank you that you have not left us to ourselves, that you've given us your word, that we can understand how to live as your people and what you would have us believe. Uh, Father, send the Holy Spirit to us this morning. Let people hear a better sermon than the one I'm going to preach. In Jesus' name, amen. Because I just read a small snippet of that passage. I'm going to just spend a couple minutes and set some context. We've got to get some background information if we're going to get a picture, a sense here of what's going on uh, with Jesus and this woman he's having a conversation with at a well. In the ancient world, Jews hated Samaritans. Jews hated Samaritans. They hated Samaritans for a number of reasons. Uh, Samaritans were distant relatives of the Jews. They were uh, the remnant of the northern kingdom that had been destroyed, and it was a remnant that not only had been destroyed, but had intermarried with Assyrian colonists. So Jews saw the Samaritans as kind of a distant relative who had kind of a polluted bloodline. And not only that, but the Samaritans had set up false worship. They had created their own temple, they had established their own priesthood, and they wanted to be independent of what was going on down in the southern part of the kingdom, uh, in Jerusalem and in Judea. So the Jews looked at the Samaritans as uh, distant relatives who had bad blood, but also had pagan worship practices. They were not liked, they were despised, they were hated. Now there's a problem, and that is that the region of Samaria, where the Samaritans live, is right smack dab in the middle of Israel. 
In the south, you have Judea, which is where Jerusalem is. In the north, you have Galilee, which is where Nazareth and Capernaum are. Uh, Both of these are places where Jesus spent a lot of time. And for Jews to travel between south and north or north and south, they would have to go right through Samaria, right through the midst of a territory full of people that they hated. So most Jews didn't do it. They would travel around. They would take and add days onto their trip so that they didn't have to go through Samaria. They might cross the Jordan River and go up that way and come around, uh, or they might go all the way over to the Mediterranean coast and go up and back into the north. They wanted nothing to do. They thought that just going through Samaria would defile them. It would be like if you believed that Winterville was a debauched and terrible place, but you lived in Aden, and you had to go to Greenville to go to the doctor. And you had to figure out how to get there, and the only way you could get there maybe was to go through Farmville, so you didn't have to go through Winterville. That's kind of the picture here. The Jews hate the Samaritans, and the Samaritans live right in the middle of them. So most Jews would not travel through Samaria. Uh, a, A contemporary of Jesus actually says this about the Samaritans. You might appreciate this. There are two nations whom my soul detests. The third is no nation at all. So two nations I detest, one's not even a nation. Uh, The Edomites, the Philistines, and the stupid people who live in Shechem. Uh, That's the Samaritans. They wouldn't even call them the Samaritans. They would just call them the stupid people who lived in Shechem. This is not a group of people who are well-liked. They are despised. That sets the stage for our passage this morning. Because where John chapter 4 opens, Jesus is in Jerusalem. And he has been ministering there. He has been uh, baptized by John the Baptist. He has been doing things, and he is starting to attract attention. And the Pharisees and the religious leaders are concerned about this guy. They want to look into him a little more. And Jesus isn't quite ready for that. Jesus isn't ready quite to to dive in head on with with the Pharisees. And so he decides that he is going to go north to Galilee, back where he's from, Nazareth, Capernaum. He's going to go back north. And he's going to do some ministry there. And John chapter 4, verse 4, John says this. He says, Jesus had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. Now, we know he didn't have to pass through Samaria because most Jews wouldn't do that, right? It's not like Jesus was required by law to pass through Samaria. He was going to do it for some other reason. When I lived in St. Louis, uh, when I was in seminary, we lived there for three years, and uh, we lived next to some really terrible neighbors, uh, John Paul and Carrie Watson. Brutal, just brutal. I'm just kidding. We love the Watsons. I hope you know I'm kidding. Uh, When we were there, St. Louis was uh, described by Time Magazine as the most dangerous city in America. It was right after we moved there. I I don't know why that, that happened then, but... Uh, In St. Louis, there is a part of town that's actually pretty rough, and that's an area called East St. Louis. Uh, And let me see if I can give you the picture. St. Louis sits on the Mississippi River. Missouri is on the west side of the river. Illinois is on the east side. East St. Louis is the city on the other side of the river. It's in Illinois, Uh, and like I said, it's a rough area. If you are on Interstate 64 and you're leaving St. Louis and you're headed east, there is a big yellow sign on Interstate 64, and it says last Missouri exit, like giant font, all capital, bright yellow, reflective. 
And people would see that sign and realize that if they didn't get off the interstate there and they needed to turn around, they were going to have to do that in East St. Louis. And people wanted nothing to do with East St. Louis. It was a rough part of town. So what you would see as you were leaving St. Louis is people would slam on their brakes and cut over like five lanes of traffic to get off at this exit. One time we saw somebody actually slam on their brakes in the middle of the interstate, pull to the shoulder, and back up to get off the exit. Like it was like serious. It was like you do not go to East St. Louis. Well, that's kind of how the Jews felt about Samaria. So when John tells us that Jesus had to go through Samaria, we have to recognize he didn't have to, he wanted to. Jesus doesn't go anywhere by accident. Jesus chooses here to go to a place that is despised. He chooses to go into a place that is broken and that is hurting because Jesus' mission is to fix and recover what is broken and what is hurting. Jesus was not scared to be associated with the wrong types of people. And so Jesus had to go to Samaria because he had to save what is fixed or what is broken and lost. So Jesus goes into Samaria. Verse 5 tells us he arrives at a town called Sychar and he sent his disciples to buy food. That was kind of one of their responsibilities as they would travel. They would buy and prepare the food. Jesus sends them to buy food, and you can imagine that Jesus is tired. He's been walking. He's been traveling. They're on a dusty road. He's sweaty. He is uh, tired and dusty, and he sits down next to a well. And the text tells us that it was about the sixth hour. Well, the sixth hour is noon, so it's hot in Israel at noon in the summer, most likely, uh, so Jesus is probably hot and tired and sweaty, and he's sitting down by a well. He's thirsty. Before long, a Samaritan woman comes to the well to gather her water for the day. You see, they didn't have indoor plumbing, right? So they had to come to the well for any water that they needed for drinking or cooking or washing. Anything that they needed water for had to come from the well. So Jesus is sitting by the well. And he's waiting on someone to come, and a Samaritan woman comes along, and Jesus strikes up a conversation with her. He strikes up a conversation. He says, can I have a drink of water? Or actually, he says, give me a drink. Uh, it's more polite than it sounds, so it sounds like he's asking. Uh, Jesus is not being rude. But the Samaritan woman is shocked. She's shocked that she is being engaged by a Jewish man, because Jews didn't associate with Samaritans. Not only did Jews not associate with Samaritans, but Jewish men especially didn't associate with Samaritan women. She's shocked because she's coming into this and saying, I'm the wrong race, gender, and religion for this conversation to be happening. And she is shocked. She can't believe that this guy is talking with her. You see, even in those opening verses, we see that Jesus is not concerned to maintain the status quo. It turns out that in the ancient world, wells were actually a good place to pick up women. Uh, and men would go meet women at the well. Uh, you see that really all through the Bible. Probably half of the patriarchs met their wives at wells. Uh, it's everywhere. And Jesus is not concerned about how he's going to be perceived. For a single man to speak to a single woman at a well opens him up very clearly to the charge of being flirtatious or being inappropriate. But Jesus doesn't care. Jesus doesn't care that Jews think he's going to be defiled by even being in Samaria. 
Jesus doesn't care. The Jews also think he's going to be defiled if he eats Samaritan food. He sent his disciples to buy food in town. He doesn't care to maintain those little petty orthodoxies. And so Jesus asks for a drink from her water vessel. He doesn't have anything with him to drink from, doesn't have a way to get the water out of the well. He asks for a drink, even though he knows that for the Jews, that would be a defiling action, that he would be, be unclean after, for drinking after a Samaritan. But Jesus is not worried about people making him dirty. You see, Jesus is God's shin to broken and dirty people. Jesus is not worried about us defiling him. The whole point of the incarnation is that Jesus is sent to people who are broken, people who are defiled, people who are sick. And that is a snapshot here. And it's a beautiful snapshot because you see in this passage that Jesus is not just going to people who are respectable enough to deserve him. He is going to people who are despised. And he is going to people who are broken and who are full of shame and mess. And he's not scared. He goes right into it, even though it would have scandalized other Jews. And that sets us up for a fascinating conversation between Jesus and this woman. You see, she is wondering why it is that he, as a Jewish man, is going to engage her in conversation. He's going to ask her for a drink. She says that in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus, his response to her is interesting. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you knew who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would ask me for a drink, and I would give you living water. He's telling her that if you could recognize what God is doing right in front of you, you would be asking, you would be begging me, for water, and I would give you living water. Now, she doesn't immediately understand what's happening there because living water was a, an idiom. It was the way that they described water that came from a spring. It was like running water, living water. Uh, so she doesn't understand immediately. She thinks that he's still talking about drinking water. We know he's talking about something deeper than that, uh, but she doesn't get that. And so she's, um, she's excited but she's also kind of curious because he doesn't have a way to get it, right? She says, you have nothing to draw water with, and this well is deep. Where are you going to get this living water? There's no spring around here. You don't even have a bucket. Are you going to just conjure water out of the ground? That, that's what she's asking here. And Jesus says something else to her. The conversation continues. He says, everyone who drinks of this water, the water in this well, will be thirsty again. But if you drink from the water that I give you, you will never be thirsty again. You'll never thirst again. The water that I give you will become in you a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Well, that sounds pretty good to her because she doesn't like having to carry heavy water at noon, right? It sounds pretty good to get some water that's going to mean you're never thirsty again. So she wants some. She says, give me some of that. I want some of this water. And Jesus says, okay, we'll go and get your husband and come back here, and I'll give you some. Well, with that, the conversation changes a little bit. And the woman says to him, you know what, I, I don't have a husband. She says that there in 
Verse 17, I have no husband. I'm not married. And Jesus says to her, you're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and now you're living with a guy who's not your husband. You've had five husbands and a fling. And this helps us understand something strange about this passage that we might not even have noticed yet. And that is that this woman is at the well alone in the middle of the day. You see, women in the ancient world, when they would go to gather water, would go in groups. It was, it was kind of the morning errand. They were a community of women going to gather water for the day to go about their business. And they would go either early in the morning or they would go uh, in the evening when it was cool and when it was nice and when it was refreshing. So you weren't carrying hot stuff in the, or heavy stuff in the hot part of the day. So they would go in groups and they would go early. This woman is by herself in the middle of the day, in the hottest part of the day. And the only thing that we can understand from that is that this woman wants to be alone. This woman is trying to avoid people. And this tells us why. She's had five marriages. And she's currently living with a guy who's not her husband. It was typical in the ancient world, even for very pious Jews, that even if your husband died, to really only have three marriages. I mean, that was still like pretty much the max. They, they, people would start to look at you funny if you had more than three, even, even if your husband had died. So this is a woman who had had five marriages and was now living with a guy. And you can tell that what that means is that she is not well thought of. She is perceived probably by other women in the town as a threat to their marriages, as someone who would be available in inappropriate ways, as someone who would be perhaps a homewrecker. Uh, this is not a woman who is well regarded. She is an outcast. She is a pariah. But you can imagine maybe from her perspective what her life looks like. You see, she's a woman who is desperate to be loved. She's going to the well because she's thirsty, and, and her physical thirst is really just a picture of this desperation she feels to be loved and accepted and welcomed. And she has been trying to satisfy that thirst, that longing with men. And, and continuously throughout her adult life, she has been used and abused and discarded. This is a woman who is deeply sad. A woman who is deeply alone and a woman who has no idea how to get out of that. No idea. And what Jesus does here is Jesus does not let her hide behind the half-truth that she's not married. He doesn't do that. He doesn't let her stay alone behind the half-truth. He pushes forward. And what he does is he gently exposes her sin, and her brokenness. And he says, you know what? You've had five marriages, and you're currently living with a guy who's not your husband. You see, he's, he's saying, I see you. I see who you are. I see what you've done. And I see not only that you're a sinner, but that your life is a mess. Jesus sees her and doesn't let her hide anymore. Notice what Jesus does not do here, though. Notice what he doesn't do. He does not downplay or minimize her sin just because it makes her uncomfortable. He doesn't pretend like she's A-okay, everything's good to go, just because it's uncomfortable for her sin to be so exposed. He doesn't do that. He also doesn't blink or blush or flinch or gag 
as he sees her sin. Jesus is not embarrassed by this woman's sin. He is not grossed out by this woman's sin. He looks at her full on, straight in the eye, sees her truly, and keeps looking. He doesn't blink and does not turn away. Jesus also doesn't offer her a heap of shame or guilt or fear. He doesn't rub her nose in her sin like she's a dog that soiled a rug. Jesus doesn't do that to her. And Jesus also doesn't tell her that her biggest need at this moment is to make it right. He doesn't tell her that she needs to go fix it, that she needs to go marry this guy and stop messing around. He doesn't tell her that. And that is good news for us because the same way that Jesus treats this woman's sin, he treats our sin. You see, Jesus exposes our sin. He doesn't minimize our sin. He looks full on at it. Jesus sees you as you truly are in all of your sin, in all of your filth, in all of your shame, and he is not disgusted by you. He doesn't turn away from you. He doesn't retch a little bit in his mouth. Jesus looks at you and sees you and keeps coming. He doesn't tell you that you need to go fix yourself and come back later. He engages you right where you are. You see, one of God's greatest kindnesses to us is to expose our sinfulness. That is God's grace. And it hurts and it is uncomfortable but it is glorious, and we don't need to fear it. Because when God shows us our sin, when God exposes our sin, that is the only time that we are open to grace. If, God's, if God never shows us our sin, we never have the opportunity to experience His grace and His healing and His forgiveness. You see, it's uncomfortable to be exposed. It's absolutely uncomfortable to have our sin exposed. But fortunately for us, God is more interested in our good than he is in our comfort. And so the story continues. Jesus has just exposed this woman's sin in a profound way. And he's done it gently, but it is still exposed. And you can tell she's uncomfortable. She says to him, I can see, I perceive that you are a prophet. You see, this woman's going to the well in the middle of the day to be alone, right? She wants to avoid people because they probably whisper and gossip about her and really want nothing to do with her. And so maybe she's thinking to herself, the one benefit of talking to a stranger at the well is that he has no context. He doesn't know me. He doesn't associate me with anything. But now that's out the window. She's completely exposed. Jesus sees her truly. And so she tries to change the subject, and she uses an old trick that you can use with some of your more uh, theologically uptight friends, uh, and that is she tries to pick a theological fight. She's thinking, well, maybe I can get this guy to go away. So she says in verse 20, our fathers worshiped on this mountain here in Samaria, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see, that was a major point of contention between Jews and Samaritans. Where should they worship? Should they worship at the temple in Samaria? Or should they worship at the temple in Jerusalem? And what's interesting is that Jesus seemingly indulges her for a moment. I think he recognizes it's a ploy, but he, he flips it on her. 
And he says that worship is not truly about location, although he stakes a claim. He says salvation is from the Jews, which means that Jerusalem would be the proper temple. He says, but it's not primarily about worship because a time is coming and is now here when the Father is seeking worshipers who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And what that means is that worship is not where you're physically standing. That's not what makes worship acceptable to God. It's about where your heart is. Worship is about where your heart is. And so this woman says, well, I know that Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he's going to lead us into all things. He's going to tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, that's me. That's me. I'm here to tell you all things. I'm here to show you what spirit and truth looks like. You see, the woman thought she was changing subjects, but Jesus shows her she wasn't. She wasn't changing the subject. She was trying to run him off, but Jesus is after this woman, and he is after this woman's heart. He can't be run off. You see, her greatest need is not to fix herself. Her greatest need is not to know the answer to the theological question about which temple is right. Her greatest need is that she needs a new heart so she can worship her God. You see, this woman is desperate to be loved. She is desperate to be accepted. She is thirsting and she is trying to satisfy that thirst with men. And just like she has to keep coming back to that well day after day to get water to drink and wash and do all the household chores with, just like she does that, so too the men will never satisfy her. She has to keep coming back. You see, her sin is not her history with men. Her sin is not her current arrangement with men. Her sin is ultimately about her worship. Her sin is the fact that she has tried to take men and worship the love that they give her. She is placing ultimate hope in something that is not ultimate, the affections of men. And so what Jesus is saying to her here in verse 26 when he says, that's me. What Jesus is saying is that you need me. You don't need men. You don't need a temple. You need me. I'm the one who's going to fix your thirst. I'm the one who's going to fix your broken and your breaking heart. I'm going to deal with your sin. I am going to satisfy the thirst you've been trying to fill with men. You see, at that point, something clicks for this woman. We don't actually see what her reaction is to that there in verse 26 because John changes for a second. John changes the way he's telling the story. In verse 27, he says, Just then, Jesus' disciples come back, and they marveled that he was talking with a woman. Good for them. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? John's trying to pat the disciples on the back. A lot of times they kind of miss the point of what Jesus is doing. So John, they did, they did good here. They didn't interrupt. Uh, but John notes, they didn't interrupt, but something has happened. Because verse 28 says, so the woman left her water jar and went away into town. And she said to the people, come and see a man 
who told me everything I ever did, can this be the Christ? Come and see a man who showed me all that I ever did, can this be the Christ? It's interesting that she leaves her water jar. This picture of this thirst that she has that continues to return and come back. Because it's almost like for the first time in her life, her soul is truly satisfied. And it makes her forget her physical thirst. And she leaves the very reason she came to the well, and she goes back towards people. Isn't that amazing? She comes to the well in the middle of the day to avoid people, and she goes back towards people. She goes to talk to the people who despise her. And look at what her message is. Her message is, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Well, they know what she did, and they want nothing to do with her, right? Why would she be highlighting that? How is that good news for her? It's amazing. This is a woman who is freed from shame. She is freed from the shame of her sin, and she wants nothing more than to tell people how it is that she's been set free from shame and guilt and fear. You see, she's a picture of a woman who is transformed by grace. She is a picture of a woman who is no longer shackled by shame. This is a woman who has been set free. You see, when God exposes our sin to us and when God deals with our sin, the place of our shame becomes ground zero for our joy. This woman has experienced a profound moment with Jesus and she is set free from shame. She has become utterly and completely transparent and she runs into town and she doesn't run into town to give people advice. She doesn't tell them that now she's been saved, like I got some thoughts for y'all people about how to make this place better. Right? She doesn't do that. She doesn't go in and be like, oh, by the way, this guy told me that it's actually Jerusalem. We've been messing up with this temple here. She doesn't go argue with people about theology. She goes in and shares her very self. She says, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Is this the Christ? And it is compelling to people. People are amazed because this is a woman who was living in shame and she is utterly without it now. It's compelling. And so verse 39 tells us that many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony that he told me all that I ever did. Her change was so profound, her her transformation so complete, her transparency so compelling that people wanted to see what had happened. People wanted to see the man who could free her from shame. And so they came to Jesus and they believed in him. And I think this gives us a helpful picture of what true evangelism can look like. Because this woman doesn't go into town armed with tracts, she hasn't memorized an outline or a survey or something uh, that just it helps her engage people. She doesn't have a strategy for evangelism except to be a picture of the gospel, to share herself, to say, look at what Jesus has done for me. I was bound to my shame and now I am free. I'm free. And people love it. And they come to Jesus. A few weeks ago, I was in 
uh, Atlanta for a meeting with some pastors who work uh, with small groups. We, we were talking about small groups and brainstorming and sharing ideas. And uh, one of the pastors was talking about how great it is to have new believers in small groups because new believers will admit the sins that older believers would never admit that they struggled with, right? I'm getting knowing smiles, but nervous smiles. Uh, one of the other pastors, uh, when this guy said that, goes, you know what? New Christians just still believe the gospel. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. And if we believe the gospel, we are free from the shame of our sin. We are forgiven. We are free from sin's shame, and we can share ourselves with one another. That's one of the things we're trying to do here at CPC with our small groups, is give people a context to experience the gospel with one another, to share their lives, to share their struggles, to show that there's no need for shame because we've been forgiven by God's grace. That's one of the things we're trying to do with small groups and one of the ways we're trying to love the people who are here at the church. You see, from the beginning of time, sin has made us run and hide. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, that's what happened with Adam and Eve. They wanted to hide from God. They wanted to hide from each other. But what the gospel does is it frees us from the need to hide from one another. The gospel frees us to move towards people, to share our lives with one another. The gospel frees us to be transparent, to share that we are broken, that we are in need of healing, and that we have been healed. And when we do that, we make the gospel beautiful. We make it plausible. The gospel is not just good news for people out there. The gospel is good news for us each and every day. The gospel is beautiful. And all of this happens. All of this, this transformation happens in Samaria. The whole town ends up coming and believing in Jesus. All of this happens because Jesus is not worried about being misperceived. Right? Jesus is not worried about being associated with the wrong kinds of people. And so Jesus didn't believe that God's grace was for those who were respectable enough to earn it. All of this happens because Jesus moves into our brokenness, he moves into our filth, he moves into our sin, and he undoes it from the inside out. He undoes it. He frees us from shame and guilt on the cross. And so you might be asking, why on earth are we talking about John 4 if we're going to be talking about Jonah next week? Let me give you just a few thoughts, a few things I think we see in John that are going to point us toward Jonah and what God is doing there. The first thing we're going to see in Jonah that we see here today is that God's grace moves into brokenness. God's grace goes to places that are broken and dirty. Just like it goes to Samaria, God's grace will go to Nineveh. God's grace also exposes sin. God's grace is not about going somewhere and saying, I'm all right, you're all right, let's be all right together. God's grace unmasks the sin that leads us to death, the sin that buries us in our shame and makes us want to hide from one another. It exposes sin and frees us from its shame and its guilt. God's grace also transforms the place of our shame into the place of our joy. The place where we felt the most shame, the place where we felt the need to hide the most from other people becomes a place where joy overflows because that place has been dealt with and it doesn't have to hide anymore. The final thing I think we'll see in Jonah that we see here today is that it's sometimes surprising who reacts to the gospel. It's surprising. 
The story opens, and the Pharisees should have recognized what Jesus was doing. They should have recognized his, his message. They should have recognized God's grace and the gospel and who Jesus was, but they didn't. And they continue not to throughout the Gospels. The Pharisees miss it. Jonah misses it. Jonah misses God's grace, right? But who gets it? The Samaritans get it. The despised people get it. Who else gets it? The Ninevites. The Ninevites get it. It's amazing. God's grace is not only for people who are respectable enough to earn it. In fact, oftentimes, more often than not, the respectability of those people keeps them from recognizing God's grace. And so there's maybe one final question we could ask this morning. And that is this. If God's grace pursues us, what does it do when he catches us? His grace pursues us, what happens when it catches us? Well, I think the story of the Bible tells us that when God's grace catches up with sinners, it shares a meal with them. That's what happens. Jesus here shares a drink of water with this woman. Jesus spent his ministry eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people who were despised. But he wasn't ashamed to do it. He wasn't worried that their sin was going to make him dirty. So he shared a meal with them. The Bible tells us that the end of the story is a meal. It's a party. Jesus comes back and fixes all the sin and brokenness for the final time and then shares a meal with us. When God's grace catches us, he shares a meal with us. And that takes us right to the table.